turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 23 to 25 together this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to 25. A couple years ago, Brady and I were able to steal some, some time to sneak out to some land about 30, 45 minutes from here and do some deer hunting. And we didn't get to hunt a lot that, that year. And we had gone a couple times and, and um, seen a few deer. And our last night, the, the night before, we had seen a couple deer that were just, they were just a little further than I wanted to, to take a shot on. And, and so we, we decided to reposition the next night to where these deer were going to be. And so we got there, and, and I don't know how many of you in here hunt, but, you know, hunting, there's, there's several rules. One, you don't want to be loud, and second, you don't want to move a lot, and you want to get in as kind of, and not disturb things any more than you have to. Just really slip in quietly and get settled and be there, and you don't want to stir up the woods. So we find our place, and we get in there, and what we were hunting in was a two-man ground blind. So this is a big blind. It's kind of like a tent, a portable tent you carry, and you pop up, and you sit it there, and you climb through, and we both had stools, and so we get the tent set up, and Braden gets his stool in there, and he sits down, and I've spent all my life hunting. Like, this is just, I, I've done this a lot, and so this caught me off guard what was about to happen. So I sit my stool, Braden's already smirking. Um, I sit my stool down, and when I went to sit down on the stool, it was a three-legged stool. And I sit on the stool, and the back leg, there was two in front and one in the back, and that back leg, there was nothing under it. And buddy, let me tell you, when I sat down, I just went, boom, and feet straight up in the air. I took the tent with me, and I'm laying on the ground, back looking straight up at the sky of the tent, and Braden's sitting there in the wide open. And I, I can't do anything. I'm like, you know, like a bug on his back. I'm flipping around, and of course, Braden's just laughing. He's like, well, we're probably not going to see a deer tonight. And we didn't. So it was a great time. I had mud all over me, and, you know, my pride was bruised. So I don't know. You learn from people's mistakes and successes, right? So that was an opportunity for Braden to learn from my mistake. The principle is this. A three-legged stool is almost worthless if one of those legs isn't working or if it's broken, right? You need to make sure all three legs are there and that all three legs are strong and supportive. And today we come to a passage where we get a glimpse into three important aspects of the ministry of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 4, 23 to 25. And they're really aspects of his ministry that need to be replicated in our lives. And they're aspects that all need to be present. We should not live a life as his followers with any of these missing. Read with me in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It says, And he went, about Jesus, and Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's go ahead and read chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, 
his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. We come to this passage and, and it brings us to the edge of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we will get into the Sermon on the Mount. But I wanted to let you know, if you did not see in Grace Notes, that that we're going to pause this week. We're going to get through the end of chapter 4 today, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break, and we're going to go and start next week. We're going to do a short study in the book of Jonah, and then we'll come back to the Sermon on the Mount after we study Jonah. But here, what we see in Matthew four twenty-three to 25 is really a, a paradigm of Jesus' ministry, a, a model or a method of how he took part in his ministry in or in his, during his time on earth. Do you see the three things he did in verse 23, the, the passage we meditated on? There were three things that Christ did. Do you see them? It says he went throughout all Galilee, doing what? Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This, this same, this same uh, concept, these same three things are repeated in Matthew 9.35. When we read, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. This was a habit of Christ. This is how he took part in ministry. It actually, th- these three things kind of frame Matthew 5 through 10. If you just kind of take note, and you can flip through, you can write this down and look at it later, but Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus sits down to do what? To teach. It says he opens his mouth and he taught. So in Matthew 5 through 7, he teaches his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. But then in chapters 8 through 9, we see Jesus doing these great works of healing. It's two chapters that just recount Jesus healing different circumstances, different people coming. And then when we come to Matthew 10, there's one left. What does he do in Matthew 10? He preaches. He sends the disciples out, as a matter of fact. He sends the disciples out to preach. So Matthew 10 is his commissioning of the disciples to go and preach. So we see the teaching, the healing, and the preaching ministry of Christ. And it's a paradigm that we see throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We see these three things that Jesus is setting forth as something that not only he does, but something that should be replicated that his followers should also do. So that when we read in verse 23 that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, we'll talk about this in a minute, when when Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, in chapter 10, verse 5, we see Jesus then sending out the disciples, and then in Matthew 28, 19, what do we hear? Go and make disciples. So Jesus is going, he went out, he has a go and tell ministry, and he then sends us out to go and make disciples. We see again in verse 23, Jesus was teaching in the synagogues. What are we told to do in Matthew 28, 20? Go and make disciples, and we are to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. Teaching is something we are called to do. In Matthew 4, 17, we see that when he begins his ministry, in verse 17, he says, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is preaching the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You are to repent. In chapter 10, verse 7, when he sends the disciples out, what does he tell them to do? He tells them to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse 23 and 24, where we read that Jesus healed every disease and infirmity, we see then when he sends the disciples out in chapter 10, verse 8, that the disciples are told to heal the sick. 
So we see this ministry model not only demonstrated in Christ, but also him leading his followers to replicate it in their lives. That we are to be those who go out. We are to be those who proclaim the gospel. We are to be those who teach about Christ, teach the word. And we are to be those who care for the physical needs of the sick and the hurting. The life of ministry that we see in Christ is to be seen in our lives. And so where I want us to start here this morning is looking in verse 23, the posture of Jesus' ministry. The posture that he has a go and tell posture. He went into Galilee in verse 23. We see right away that he has this posture of going in ministry. He does not just sit back and wait for people to come to him. And that's actually, if you think about it, that's what you see in John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, when you read about him, what are the people doing? They are coming to him, and as they come to him, he is preaching a message of repentance from sins, and he is baptizing them. Jesus, on the other hand, goes into the wilderness, and he goes into Galilee and preaches, teaches, and heals. He went. He went. The, the Greek, in this instance, is in the imperfect. It's this continuous action. It's something that continues on and on and on. It is something he continually did. Jesus was not just making a trip. This is not something that describing Jesus going, you know, I just want to make a trip, a little circuit around Galilee. This was not a special event for Jesus. This was not a special mission trip that he's like, man, this is going to be a really cool experience. And if I get to go around and make this circle, I can make, maybe get a really cool trendy cloak that I can wear with a nice graphic that said I went on the mission trip around Galilee. He wasn't trying to take some nice pictures. He wasn't trying to brag about what he did. He wasn't wanting some missions experience. He simply went and went and went and went. It's the habit of his life to go throughout all of Galilee. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Galilee had about 204 villages and small towns in it. Josephus actually says that each one had 15,000 people in it. Now, we don't know if Josephus was kind of building that number up or what, but Josephus is a very respected Jewish historian, so we don't necessarily have reason to question him, but that would be a large, large segment of people in Galilee. But what we see is that Jesus is going about town to town, and, and if you just think about trying to visit 204 villages in a three-year span, that is a lot of work. Jesus was not lazy. He was not sitting back in his hammock. He was not sitting back reading some parchments by the sea for his enjoyment. Jesus was about the Father's work. He was about the Father's work. Why? Why did he go? He went for the express purpose of preaching, teaching, and healing. That's why he went. Again, the, the wording in the original language expresses that those things were not just something that happened. It wasn't just something that came up that he went and goes, oh, wow, here's an opportunity. I didn't realize I was going to get to preach the word here. <laughs> no, he went so that he could preach, so that he could teach, so that he could heal. He had the purpose of doing those things, and we see that in his life. We see that he lived with great purpose and diligence and intentionality in his life of ministry. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do I see that same thing in my life? Do I live with that same intentionality? Do I seek to live in a way that honors God? Do I seek to live in a way that replicates the model that I see in my Savior? Am I doing as he did? Am I teaching what he taught? Am I caring as he cared? 
Am I living with that same purpose in my life? Are you living with that same purpose in your life? Man, ask yourself that question. Just think about how you approach this week. Are you just approaching it just in the normal rhythm and routine? No consideration to what opportunities might be in front of you? Or are you walking into your place of employment? Are you walking into your home? Are you walking out of your bedroom into the chaos of children with the express purpose of teaching them to follow Christ? with proclaiming the gospel to those you encounter. Is that what your life looks like? Now, that's the posture of Christ's ministry. Let's look at the, the three legs of his ministry. Preaching, teaching, and healing. Each one of these important. Each one of these need to be stable, need to be a present part of our lives, our ministry. The first one we see in verse 23 is that he was teaching in their synagogues. He was teaching in their synagogues. The, the synagogue came to prominence in the intertestamental period. You don't really read of the synagogue in the Old Testament, but in the intertestamental period, the synagogue arises as, as the people could not travel to Jerusalem. They are in the Babylonian captivity. And so because of that, synagogues start arising as a place of worship and religious life in each town. So it's estimated that any town that had 10 or more Jews typically had a synagogue. And so you would see Jews gathering around that. The typical service in a synagogue really doesn't seem much different than what we've done today. But typically in a synagogue service, they would recite the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hero, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So they would recite that. They would then uh, read from Scripture, usually an Old Testament passage from the law and then from the prophets. And then there would be a sermon and then a benediction, a time of blessing as they went out. If you, if you just are curious, kind of a glimpse into life in the synagogue, you can look at, at Luke 4, verse 16. This is when Jesus comes in. It's the same thing he's doing here. It says Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty or set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say, "Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." That, that's what happened, that what we just talked about the synagogue. This is a glimpse of that happening in the life of Christ. So when we read that he was teaching in their synagogues, we should have in our mind more of a formal teaching, a formal passing on of knowledge. It's probably something not necessarily spur of the moment, but it was something that was organized, something where they said, hey, Jesus, we've heard about what you're doing. Would you come and teach? There would be something that was a little more planned. It wasn't necessarily a time of discussion. It wasn't a time of bantering back and forth. It was a time in which he taught the people. Now, when we think about Jesus' teaching, I think it's interesting. You think about his life and his ministry. It's interesting that when you get down to Acts 1, 1 to 3, Luke tells us that Jesus continued teaching throughout the end of his ministry all, all the way to the time that he ascended. This was just something that he did and continued to do all throughout his life. In John chapter 7, 
verses 14 and 16, we read that about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answers them and says, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. In other places, they marveled because he was one who taught with authority. There was a truth, a a depth, a, a profoundness of his truth, what he taught. Because it was from the Father. Think about what, what he taught. We certainly don't have time today to think about everything he taught, but just, just think about these things. Listen, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. We're going to study a lot of this. What does he teach? He, he teaches there that believers are the salt and the light of the world. Later in Matthew 5, 21 to 48, he teaches that righteousness is more about your heart than your deeds. In Matthew 6, 1 to 13, he teaches us how to pray. And in 6, 19 to 21, he teaches us to treasure the things of heaven because where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. In Matthew 6, 25 to 34, he teaches us not to worry about the cares of life, but to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and God will add all these things unto you. In Matthew 7, 15 to 20, he teaches us that like a tree, believers are known by their fruit. In Matthew 8, 18 to 22, he teaches us that it is costly to follow him. In chapter 9, verse 18 to 30, he teaches that what truly pleases God is faith in him. And then in 10, 16 to 25, he, treats, he teaches that followers of Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 15, 1 through 9, he teaches that true worship is a matter of the heart. It's not just what you say or what you do, but where is your heart? These are all teachings of Christ, and we could go on and on and on in the book of Matthew alone of the things that Christ teaches us. But he teaches us, and we are then to teach what he taught. We are to teach people to obey all that he commanded, and the prominence and importance of teaching is seen in the New Testament. We read in Romans 16, 17, we are told to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. The doctrine that you've been taught, the word of God, the truth of God that you've been taught, we have to be aware of those who would teach and bring something in contrary to that. In Titus 2, 1, Paul tells Titus, he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what affirms the truth the scripture. In Acts 2.42, we get a glimpse of the early church. What are they doing? It says that they are devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. In, in 2 John 1.9, we read, Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So somebody comes in this place and starts teaching something contrary to the truth of God's word. We don't care how winsome he is. We don't care how influential he is in our culture. We don't care about anything, but he's contradicting the word of God, and we don't tolerate it. We don't listen to it. Because it's not sound doctrine. We guard the doctrine of the church. So that's why when we come to Matthew chapter 5 and we read that Jesus sees the crowds. He sees the crowds. These great crowds of people come and they, they start following him. He, can, he generates numbers. Why, it, there's no telling why they came, but it's likely they came because of all the healing, all the great works that he does. They, they start coming. What does he do? He doesn't say, hey, all right, just keep on following. Don't worry about anything. 
No, he sits down and he teaches them. In that moment, he sits down and he teaches, what does it look like to follow me? What does the follower of God look like? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. So we need to pay careful attention when we get into the Sermon on the Mount in a few weeks of what Christ taught. It's not, it's not particularly hard to draw a crowd. We know that, don't we? In our culture, of all cultures, we can see how easily you can draw a crowd. We can get a lot of people here. That's not necessarily difficult, but teaching them and preaching the gospel in that moment, that is absolutely vital. We must teach doctrine. We must teach the scriptures. That's why in that moment when crowds come forward, he sits down and it says that he opened his mouth and he taught them in Matthew 5, 2. So we see the teaching ministry of Christ. The second thing is we see the preaching ministry of Christ. It says in verse 23, he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is the first thing he did in chapter 4, verse 17. We already mentioned that. When he comes on the scene, he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here, so repent and believe. He is preaching. He is proclaiming the good news. That's, that's what preaching is. It, it is to, to herald to proclaim, to announce. In Christ, in his life, when he's proclaiming when the good news that, that Christ has come, he's talking about himself. <laughs> so in his teaching, he's announcing the good news that the kingdom is here, and he's talking about his own life, his own death, his own resurrection. This was indeed the good news that he was a herald of, that he was proclaiming. And we see this continuing, the importance of, of preaching. We see it continuing on into the New Testament. We read in, in Romans 10, Verse 14, where Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without what? Without someone preaching to them. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, it says, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach it. Be ready in season, out of season, to preach the word, Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. We proclaim that, we herald that, we announce that, because that is the good news, because he is the power of God. He is indeed the wisdom of God. Preaching is vital. J.C. Ryle, in, in, his, in his commentary, I, I think it's on Matthew, that, but in his commentary, he notes and says that the best days of the church is when the preaching of the gospel is the most highly esteemed. But the darkest days in the church is when the preaching of the gospel has been lightly esteemed or neglected. If you want to see the gospel go forth and you want to see a church grow and be healthy, then we highly esteem preaching. Not the preacher, but we highly esteem preaching. The exposition of God's holy word. Now, preaching and teaching are very similar, right? They're very similar, but I think there is an important distinction. And here it is. Here's the distinction we need to know. Is that you can teach and never preach. I, I could stand up here and teach until I'm blue in the face and not once preach. 
Because preaching is what? It is proclaiming the good news, right? But when we preach, there should be an element of teaching. Because we're preaching, we're proclaiming good news, and we're saying that Christ is the good news. We're saying that he's the good news because of this. And so what that means for us is that, that for when we think about this pulpit and we think about this time each Sunday morning, it means that we should desire that this pulpit and this time should never be a place that is void of gospel proclamation. This should be a time where we come and we want to see the word of God and the good news of God proclaimed. That we want to hear it heralded, we want to see it announced. That we don't come just to be taught, but we come to hear the pronouncement of God's good news. That's exactly what Jesus did. Did did you just note this? When Jesus stands up in Luke 4, remember we read this passage? Listen to what he does. He, He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, why? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To do what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has been sent to herald, to announce, to preach. See, preaching and teaching is vital. And here's the difference. Here's the difference. Is this one thing for me to stand up here And to teach you that Psalm 99 declares that God is a holy God. And he does that three times in that psalm to teach us that God is holy, holy, holy. But it is a holy other thing for me to stand up there and teach you that that same holy God who is holy, holy, holy became sin on your behalf. He who knew no sin, that holy God, became sin on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God. That is proclaiming good news. You can't be holy, but the holy God sacrificed his own blood for your sake. That's good news. It's one thing for me to stand here and teach you that Romans 3.23 shows us that all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. But it's a wholly other thing for me to proclaim that 1 Timothy 1.15 says that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's totally different. That is good news. It's one thing for me to stand here and to teach you that Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin are death. Oh, but it is another thing altogether to proclaim the second part of Romans 6.23, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is good news. It's one thing to stand up here and to teach Ephesians 2.1, that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. That is absolutely sound doctrine. But it is a whole other thing to proclaim Ephesians 2, 4, that God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Jesus Christ by his grace. That is good news. That's proclaiming good news. It's one thing to teach sound doctrine and to just teach through Matthew and teach you what Jesus did and what he said and, and how he lived and to teach you all of that that we need to know. But it is a whole other thing to proclaim the truth of Matthew twenty twenty eight that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. That is good news. Because when we come to Matthew 5-7, through we hear the teaching. What we're going to be confronted with is this is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. But you know what? I fall short of that every day. I can't attain that. I'm not holy. And so if we just leave it there, that is not good news. But when we understand that it is Christ who saves, 
It is Christ who died for us. It is Christ who sanctifies us and grows us. And the good work that he began in us, he will carry to completion. That is good news. And so we live according to his grace. The grace that saves us is the grace that sustains us and carries us through life, sanctifies us. That is good news. So may this pulpit never run dry of Christ-centered preaching. Do we want to teach? Absolutely. Are we going to teach just sound doctrine in classes? Yep, that's grace equipping. But in this place, when we teach, we will also preach from this place because we must proclaim the good news of Christ. The third thing that we see is healing. Verse 23 to 24, the third component of Jesus' ministry. We read that he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. It just says he simply healed them. Every disease, every affliction among the people, he heals them. Now the first two, preaching and teaching, deal with what? They deal with spiritual needs, right? They deal with our spiritual lives, focus on the spiritual needs of man. But when we come to this, the healing of Christ, it focuses on the physical needs of man. So we see that Christ does not focus on spiritual needs at the neglect of physical needs, but he also does not go and focus on the physical needs at the neglect of their spiritual needs. Both must be held in tension. We don't do one without the other. That's an important tension to hold in our day. As some would go and say, we just go and we just care for people and we just do, do this and fight for these causes and we don't worry about the rest. No, we always worry about the physical and the spiritual needs of people. We always present the gospel. So we see him healing every disease, every affliction. There is nothing beyond his power. He is able. He is not a weak God. That means that you need to know this as you suffer. As you suffer through the pains of life, the, the physical um, uh, challenges of life, the hurts of life, you need to know that he is able. He is not weak. Now, as a side note, I would point out here that you need to see the things that it talks about him healing. Because there are some that would say, you know what, all, all this talk about spiritual warfare it really is just physical ailments that people had and they didn't have a firm understanding of medicine and so they've grown and so now modern medicine takes care of that there wasn't really anything demonic going on well apparently that's not the case because when you read it there's a distinction between what is spiritual in nature and what is physical in nature we see that he heals various diseases various pains those oppressed by demons epileptics paralytics he healed them the people knew the difference. Matthew knew the difference between what would be physical ailments that modern medicine we understand now, epilepsy and, and, and different diseases, different pains. We may know more about those things, but they knew that there was a spiritual element involved, that the spiritual realm was indeed true and it was there. But as we see, Christ can heal both the physical and the spiritual ailments of man. There's three things that we need to take away from Christ's physical healing, his care for the physical needs of man. One is that Jesus, our merciful and compassionate Lord, cares deeply for the plight of man. He, he cares deeply for the plight of man. Your pain and your suffering is seen and cared for. It is seen and cared for. 
The, the second thing that, that we see is that, that Jesus' ministry to the physical needs of people arises out of his compassion for the people. It arises out of his compassion for them. That, that, is, that is why he cares for them. It's not because he, he's saying, you know what, if you accept this message, then I'm going to help you. If you pay me this, then I will bless you with this. We don't see this type of thing going on. Jesus simply has compassion on them, and he cares for them. It's not contingent on them accepting the gospel. It's not contingent on what they look like, who they are, where they're from. It does not demand a payment. It does not ask their motives for coming. He simply has compassion on them and cares for them and heals them. Genuine, Christ-driven love simply cares for those in need. Simply cares for those in need. The third thing we see is that caring for the physical needs of others adds weight to our words. Caring for the physical needs of others adds weight to our words. The easiest way to undermine your message is to show no concern for the needs of people you're talking to. That's the easiest way to undermine your message. You can tell them the gospel, you can tell them you love them, but if you do not show them you love them, then it undermines all that you're saying. Jesus' ministry focused on the physical needs and the spiritual needs of the people. He did not neglect their physical needs. So that what we see is the one who proclaimed good news, the one who saw and and taught about mercy, taught about love, we see in him the untouchable are touchable because of his love and because of his mercy. We see in him that the incurable are cured by his power. He demonstrates that power. We see in him that the unforgiven are indeed forgiven by his grace. Christ's ministry, healing, preaching, teaching, all hand in hand. So where does that leave us? I think there's some questions that we need to ask ourselves in response to this passage. Here's the first question, just some simple questions to close. Who am I telling about the gospel? Who who am I seeking to tell about the good news of Jesus Christ? Second question. Who am I seeking to teach or to disciple? Who who is it that in my life I'm, I'm seeking to help them to grow? To not only proclaim the gospel, maybe to clarify the gospel. And you understand that there are those, some of you in this room have been Christians longer than I've been alive. You sat through plenty of Sunday school lessons, gone to plenty of classes, read plenty of books, heard plenty of sermons. If you're not teaching anyone, if you're not seeking to disciple anyone, it is time to do it. It's time to do it. If you need help in that, Come talk to one of the pastors. We would love to help you. But it is time. Who are you intentionally seeking to teach? Who are you intentionally seeking to disciple? A third question. Who am I caring for and ministering to in their physical needs? Think about people around you. Perhaps there's somebody you see that's struggling physically. How are you caring for them? Perhaps it's just somebody you, you come upon. Perhaps you're at the store and there's someone who is struggling, struggling physically. You don't need to know their story. 
You don't need to know why they're in the state they're in. Perhaps it's their own fault. Perhaps it's no fault of their own. All you need to know is that there's a physical need and I can care for that need. So who are you caring for? And then finally, am I actively going about God's work? Am I actively going about the work of my Lord? Am I seeking to minister to others? And I, am I seeking to tell? Am I seeking to teach? Listen, we have lots of opportunities. The, the health and wellness clinic, 516 clinic that many of you have prayed for and heard about, there's going to be lots of opportunities for you to care for the needs of the hurting, for you to teach and to proclaim the gospel. Tonight, you have an opportunity to go, to go and tell. That's an opportunity set before us to go and tell. Lord willing, the rain holds. That's an opportunity. You have people around you every week to teach. Vacation Bible School. The easy opportunity to sit and to teach. You have people in your life, people in your home. Opportunities to teach. Will you take those opportunities or are you going to just sit back and go, well, I hope I have an opportunity. Or are you going to go and be someone who goes and tells? Let's have that same posture of Christ that we would go and intentionally seek to replicate his ministry. We live in a day of constant distraction, and I think that is a goal. I think that's something that just prides Satan greatly, that it's so easy to distract us. It's so easy to come and to nod along to a sermon and go, yeah, that's good, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, and then go home and instantly get distracted or not even get home and be distracted, but we get distracted on the way because one person drives and everybody else is on their cell phone. And we're distracted. We watch and we entertain ourselves all afternoon and all evening. We're just too worn out to go and tell. Too tired. Too busy. But are we really? Our Lord went and went and went and went throughout all Galilee. May we be a people focused on His mission the mission that he has given us, and may we be relentless in that. Let's be relentless. Let's don't be a, a lazy church. Let's don't be a, a, a church that just kind of vicariously loves missions because we come and we just want to hear somebody give a good mission story. Let's don't be that person. Let's be the people who love that, and they love the testimony of missions. We, we get excited about that. It's a blessing, but it's because that we're doing the same, and we're living our life on mission, whether that's across the street in Saddlebrook or whether it's across the pond in Europe. Whatever it is, that we would be a people who are intentionally seeking to preach and to teach and to heal that we care about the spiritual plight and the physical plight of those around us. Let's be those intentional people who are going and proclaiming and telling, not a people who are just sitting back and hoping things happen. Let's go and let's be involved in what God is doing. God is moving. God is moving. Let's hurl ourselves in front of Him. Let's just throw ourselves out and say, God, plow me over by Your grace and use me for Your glory. Let's be those people. Let's pray. Father, we...